Ecclesiastes 11.1 through 12.8. This is the word of God. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones and the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring to you, bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are, they are afraid also of what is high and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Michaela and Lloyd. Um, Well, imagine if today it was revealed to you that you had one month to live. Now, you're you're, you're not sick, you're you're in good health, uh, but what would you do? Or, or imagine this, imagine it was revealed to you today that you have one month to live, you're in good health, you're not sick, and you have one hour to plan whatever you would do. Now, what would be interesting about that experiment would be how it would focus the mind. Like, like surely whatever you go to when you start writing out plans, it would reveal a little bit about what you love and, and, and what you value. And I think a lot of what the book of Ecclesiastes is doing is kind of pushing us towards that idea that, that, look, life is, is short. Um, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we read this phrase about life is vanity, vanity of vanities. Uh, in, in some translations, that word vanity is, uh, is translated as meaningless, um, but that might not be the best translation. Vanity is okay, but that word vanity, uh, in the Greek Bible, there's a word in the New Testament that matches this word vanity in the Old Testament, and it's found in James 4.14. I've mentioned this several weeks ago as we've been studying through this. But that word vanity uh, is translated as mist 
in James 4.14. And here's how it's used there in James. It says, what is your life for you? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So that idea of vanity is the same idea as a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So my life, your life, is only a little mist that appears for a little while and then it goes away. Life is short. Life is profoundly short. Life is vanity. All is vanity. Everything is really, really short. And that idea that life is really, really short should shape our approach to life. And if you don't realize that your life is profoundly short, then you're probably doing it wrong. If we don't realize that our life is profoundly short, there's some problems that we're going to run into. And I think our text gives us three problems that we can have if we don't realize that our life is profoundly short. One, you can become passive. Two, you can take good things for granted. And then three, you can forget about God. So like I said, I think our text warns us against these three things. And so I have three points today uh, that I want to go through these problems. So, So my first is this, is that you don't know what God is doing. Therefore, you should work hard and not be passive. Look at uh, chapter 11, verse one through six. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. That's clear as day, so I'm not even gonna explain it. I'm joking. To be honest, I'm not really sure what that means. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Verse two, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the, bones, uh, in the, comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. Now, like I said with, with verse 1 about cast your bread upon the waters, you'll find it after many days, uh, is famously difficult to understand. Uh, there's, there's three views of what that means. I'm not even going to get into it. If you're interested, come talk to me later. Um, but I, I think it's part of this big idea of, of verses 1 through 6 that we just saw. Uh, and I think one, the verses 1 through 4 whatever those verses mean, which is some are easier to understand than others, but I think it's summarized in verse five and six. So look at verse five. As you do not know the way of the spirit, the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So we don't know what God is doing. We don't know what God is up to. And if we embrace that truth, if we embrace it in our hearts and minds that we don't know what God is doing, there's an application to embracing the truth that we don't know what God is doing. And that application is in verse six. In the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper this or that or whether both alike will be good. So since we don't know what God is doing, we should be active and not passive. We should work hard at whatever it is that we are being given to do. And and the analogy here is the farmer sowing Seed. He doesn't know what will prosper, what will not prosper. He just knows he needs to sow. And I'm reminded of the, the parable in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. Some seed fell on good soil, some on bad. 
and some seed was taken away. But whatever fell on good soil produced a hundredfold. So just because some seeds or even most seeds don't prosper doesn't mean the farmer shouldn't sow. It just means he doesn't know what God is doing. So, so we should not be paralyzed by the prospect of failure or challenges because we, we will fail. It's, it's guaranteed. But instead of being paralyzed by that, we should just work. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So there's a way of forecasting the future that can be paralyzing. You guys might have heard the old fable about the fox and the cat. And so the, the fox is, is bragging to the cat about how he has all these ways of escape. And he's got just tons of ways he can, he can uh, get away from predators. And the cat just has one trick. He just goes and runs up a tree somewhere. And then as the story is told, uh, some, some hunters and hounds come to, 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 to chase them. And the cat does the one thing he does, but the fox is paralyzed by thinking through all the ways he can escape. And while he's thinking about all these ways, he's captured. And there's also a way of forecasting the future that is really probably just a manifestation of, of laziness. Proverbs twenty two thirteen says this, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. And so there's a way of thinking into the future that, that is paralyzing because things, bad things could happen, so we shouldn't take any risks. We should play it safe. And, and what we should do, rather than having our uncertainty fuel our laziness and fear, we should, we should leverage our uncertainty to build up our confidence in God. Think about this. So we, uh, a few years ago, we went through 1 Samuel 14. Uh, and in 1 Samuel 14, we read about Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they're coming up on, on, the, on a big camp of the Philistines. And, uh, and anyway, as they're going up, they're vastly outnumbered. It's, it's two versus a whole camp of Philistines. And we, we read this in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his uncertainty fueled his faith in what God might do. And we see something similar in Esther. In Esther 4.15, we read this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So she didn't know what might happen when she was going to approach the king. The, the Jews were coming in under attack, and she didn't know she might live or die. She didn't know what was going to happen, but she was going to do something. So even though she knew she might die, she was not going to, she was not going to sit silently by because she didn't know what the Lord might do. She thought, if I perish, I perish. Or, or to put it in the words of Ecclesiastes, if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, it will lie. So we should work and be faithful. We don't know what God is doing. Whatever happens, happens. Wherever the tree falls, there it will lie. So uncertainty should lead us to entrust ourselves to God in new and fresh ways and become more bold and active and not fearful or passive or lazy. And if your hope is in God, when uncertainty begins to, to encroach upon you, as it will for all of us, it, it, it could and should be the beginning of an adventure of hoping in God, who we don't know what he's going to do, but we're about to find out. But if your hope is in yourself, or others, then uncertainty will be scary, anxiety-inducing, and paralyzing. Now, the second point, 
is rejoice in life because the days of darkness are more than the days of light. All right, look at verse uh, 7 through 10 in chapter 11. It says this, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let, let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So those few verses there really embraces the tension that we see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes of, of enjoying life. We're, we're, throughout Ecclesiastes, we're, we're hearing this message, enjoy life, but then we're also hearing this other part, life is vanity. It's short. It's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And so it's, it's kind of this back and forth of good news and bad news throughout the book of Ecclesiastes and throughout this passage. So, so notice the back and forth of kind of positive and negative in verses 7 through 10. So, for example, it starts off in verse 7, positive. Light is sweet and is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Now it's going to shift to negative. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Back to positive. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Back to negative. But know that for all these things, God will bring into judgment. Back to positive. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. Back to negative. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So, so the main idea seems to be pushing us towards enjoying life. But realize that life is short. You're just a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Enjoy life. But you're going to give an account of yourself to God. And so there's several passages in Ecclesiastes that, that do this. And uh, a lot of these passages are known as the Carpe Diem passage, uh, passages. And that they say something to the effect of uh, there's nothing better for us to do than to eat, drink, and enjoy our work, enjoy our lot in, in life. And I, I don't know if some of you were here a few weeks ago when I talked about Carpe Diem. And, and that's a phrase that was, uh, I've always understood it to mean seize the day, which that's what it, what it means. But I understood it, I think, in the wrong way. I always understood Carpe diem, seize the day to be kind of a ambitious, go after it, go get it, um, make things happen. But that seize the day is actually uh, a, a better translation might be to pluck the day as one might pluck a flower to admire it. And so the idea of, of carpe diem or seize the day or pluck the, the day is to just enjoy the day that God gives you. And it's more about just taking the day for what it is than going after it and making it happen. So we should make a real effort to rejoice in all of our days and let our hearts cheer us. And we should walk in the way of our heart and the sight of our eyes and try to remove vexation from our hearts and put away pain from our bodies. In short, we should try, we should make a real effort to enjoy our lives and be happy. We should take time to enjoy the day that God is giving us to enjoy. And, and as we are giving effort to enjoy the good things of life, be happy, we need to remember that this life goes, comes and goes faster than we realize and that we will, at the end of it, give an account of ourselves to God. In Romans 14, 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So in these few verses, I think there's three clear takeaways for us. 
Number one, enjoy life. Two, know that life is really short, profoundly short. However short you think it is, it's shorter. And three, you will give an account of yourself to God. Enjoy life, know it's really short, and you will give an account of your life to God. Now, moving on to the third point, remember your creator before the end comes. Remember your creator before the end comes. Look at verse, uh, chapter 12, verse one through eight. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the, song, and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those that look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and the terror is in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. I imagine for all of us, some of us, when we die, it's going to come upon us slowly. Some of us, it'll be faster. We won't see it coming. But for, for those of us who make it to our deathbed, and we know that our hours are, are short, it's down to not years or even months, but we know it's down to days, maybe hours until we die. No one's going to need to tell us, remember God. I, I'd imagine the thought of going before our creator in a matter of hours or minutes is going to very much focus our mind towards our creator. The closer we are to imminent death, the more mindful we naturally will be to meeting our creator. The further we are from what appears to be imminent death, the, the, the more likely we will be to forget God. And, and, and one thing that's interesting about this, uh, if you'll notice uh, chapter 12, verse 8, those are the preacher's last words. So he goes through this, he, he wraps it up saying, we're going to die. It's going to come sooner than you think. Life is short. We're going to die. And then in verse 8, he get, goes back and he says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And so he's saying again, life is short. It's a breath. It's a mist that appears a little, for a little while and then goes away. Now, what's interesting, so this character, the preacher, we've been with him since chapter 1. But if you'll remember the, the first sermon on Ecclesiastes, we pointed out that uh, there's, there's, two, there's two speakers in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a narrator in chapter one, and he introduces the preacher who starts in verse two. And then he, the preacher goes on and on all the way to chapter 12, verse eight. And then the narrator picks up in, in chapter 12, verse nine. But let's go back to chapter one and look at how the preacher started off his message in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, we read this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Now, fast forward to chapter 12, verse 8. The preacher is done, and what are his last words? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. He ends where he begins. And the emphasis that he makes here is that all is vanity, 
Life is like a mist. Life, everything, it appears for a little while and then vanishes. All the things that we think are a big deal and important, they come and they go. If we understand our lives as anything other than profoundly short, then we are doing it wrong. (laughs) Really wrong. (laughs) It's really short. That's the point that he's making here. If we don't see it as being profoundly short, shockingly short, then we've grossly overestimated our significance. And look, even if you have low self-esteem, you've overestimated yourself. And the reason why is because part of having a low self-esteem is being disappointed that you aren't esteemed higher. And you will not have a low self-esteem if you see yourself as a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And look, so hear me say something that's kind of weird to say. Me, you, we're insignificant. We're really, really small. We're like a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. And y'all, that's really good news. There is good news behind the idea that you are small and not a big deal. That in the big scheme of things, you are profoundly insignificant. That means the pressure is off. You don't have to be somebody important. You can be insignificant because you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And the consequence of not embracing this insignificance is that you will end up chasing after significance somehow, some way. You need to let people know that you matter, that you, you're important, you're significant. Or, and, and what this is doing, when you're doing this, when you're trying to make a statement and make your mark on the world and let this be known by accomplishing things and doing things, that's what the preacher calls chasing the wind. And it is awful. And we've all gotten into that trap and it's miserable. And when you're chasing after significance, when you're chasing the wind, you know what you can't do? You can't seize the day. You can't enjoy the good things that God put right in front of you to enjoy because you're chasing something else that's going to bring some kind of significance to you. It's going to make your mark. And look, that's a really big deal. If you're living a life that's chasing the wind, you are missing the good things that God is giving you. I think we got to get that to understand this message of Ecclesiastes. If we're chasing after some fantasy idea of what it means to be successful or significant, whatever it is, we're going to miss God's good gifts to us. I really recommend watching Pixar's movie, The Soul. It really captures this idea really well. But look, it's, it's actually an evil thing to be so consumed with chasing the wind, chasing significance, that you cannot enjoy what God has given you. One of the passages that struck me as we've been going through Ecclesiastes is chapter 5, verse 19 through chapter 6, verse 2. I'll, I'll read it. It says this, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to, them, to enjoy them and to accept his, his lot and rejoice in his toll, this is the gift of God, to, to enjoy what God's given them. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now there is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity 
a grievous evil. It is an evil thing to not have the ability to enjoy the good things of life. It is an evil thing to not be able to accept your lot in life. David Brooks uh, writes about this idea in his book called The Second Mountain. Uh, and I'll, I'll read a little blurb that's on Amazon if you were to, to um, I, it's, it's a good book, I recommend it. It's not necessarily a Christian book, but it kind of gets this idea of what we're talking about. But here's a little blurb about uh, his book that I found on Amazon. He writes this, he says, every so often you meet people who radiate joy, who seem to know why they were put on this earth, who glow with the kind of inner light. Life for these people has often followed what we might think of as a two mountain shape. They get out of school, they start a career, they begin climbing the mountain they thought they were meant to climb. Their goals on this mountain are the ones, are the ones our culture endorses, to be a success, to make your mark, to experience personal happiness. But when they get to the top of that mountain, something happens. They look around and find the view unsatisfying. They realize this wasn't my mountain after all. There's another bigger mountain out there that is actually my mountain. And this second mountain he goes on to describe as a mountain with four commitments of family, work, faith, and community. And there's a sense where if you were to, 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 to read this book, you would see there's two things he's describing. That the first mountain is chasing the wind. And the second mountain, enjoying the good things of life. And I hope you're seeing Ecclesiastes in life. It's, it seems like the book, of, the message of Ecclesiastes is screaming everywhere in books, in movies, in songs. And so we need to know that we are prone to chase after the wind and miss the sweet, good things that God is putting right in front of us. So we need to be careful which mountain we're climbing. One mountain will leave you unhappy and tired, and the other mountain is full of joy and laughter. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to see this second mountain, to reject chasing after significance or making a name for yourself, and to actually see that first mountain as a form of slavery and misery, and to see the second mountain as not just the right thing to do, but a place of deep joy, a place where you want to be. Much of the first mountain is about making a name for yourself, forming an identity. Before the Christian climbing the second mountain, we transfer all of our identity to the man on the cross. Everything that kind of combats our idea of being significant or great, all of our shame and guilt, we move that to the man on the cross. And we receive from that man his perfect record. His significance is applied to us, his perfect righteous record. And what we get when we understand that, we're, we're free to no longer pursue making a name for ourselves. We're free to enjoy God's good gifts because we're not enslaved to making our mark on the, on, the, on, on the world or whatever it might be. And it brings us to the place where, where, where this is where we live, is that I don't have anything to prove to man or God. That is a sweet, sweet place to be. I don't have anything to prove to man or God. I can just enjoy what God's given me. I have nothing left to prove. All my guilt and shame has been transferred away from me. Everything that matters that was in Christ has been transferred to me. I have nothing left to prove to man or God. Christ is my hope, my future, my identity. That's what it means to be in 
Christ. Our significance is in him and not in what we can accomplish or obtain. And, and Jesus didn't just come to die for sins. He did that certainly. But he also came to give us lives filled with real joy and real happiness, to bring us to this second mountain of joy, to bring us into the kingdom of God. And even just to, 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 to make the point again, I'll, I'll close in quoting one of my favorite verses in, uh, in John chapter 10, verse 10, uh, 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief lives on that first mountain. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you forgive us for how we uh, lose our mind at times and we try to make a name for ourselves? We, um, we live out what we read in Ecclesiastes 1. We chase the wind. Uh, and even when we get to where we think we want to go, we find ourselves tired and unhappy. And so would you help us to understand the gospel in a way that brings us to a place of rest where we have nothing to prove to man or God and we can enjoy the good things that you give us. And so would you reorient our heart and mind towards you to rest in the fullness of the gospel. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.